Hello, and welcome to Creative Banter, a creativity and philosophy-focused podcast where anything goes. I'm your host, Cody Schultz. Joining me is the one and only Ben Horn. In this week's episode, our conversation is driven by thoughts on composition and visual theory. We talk about the unfortunate attitudes had revolving around compositional rules, which have the potential of harming one's creativity. We then speak on wet plate photography, which leads us to talking a bit about orthochromatic film and its potential uses. And if that isn't enough, we also speak a bit about footwear, leaving off with a question for those listening. Let's dive right into it, shall we? So a couple weeks ago, I sat on NPN. They have these discussion uh, discussion posts that you can put up on there. Mm-hmm. And mine that I decided to do was, what draws your eye? And mm-hmm. it goes, this past week, and this was a couple weeks ago when I was up in the mountain house riding around on the motorcycles with my dad. Um, at some point, we had stopped off at a gas station. And I had my Pentax uh, Spotmatic 35 millimeter with me. Mm-hmm. So I decided to compose a quick photograph of the field aside of where we parked. So in the frame was, of course, the field itself, as well as a bit of the metal barrier and some telephone poles in the midground. As I was framing the composition, my father asked me what I saw that was so interesting so as to take a photograph. In other words, what drew my eye and pulled me to make the photograph. Honestly, at the time, I could not articulate an answer. And it got me thinking, why is it that we photograph what we photograph? So I figured I'd pose that same question on NPN, but also here to you and to everyone listening, because it's, it's something that caught me off guard. It's not something that I think a lot about. Um, I just kind of react more than contemplate when I see a scene. So when you're out with your camera and the composition catches your eye, do you ever think why? And further, are there any scenes which catch your eye more often than others? And if so, why do you think that is? That is interesting. Do, do you think it's a certain like feeling that you're sensing when you see the scene or, or, or how, you know, how would you describe the the feeling when you when you recognize that is it like a little epiphany like I, i'm curious what your experience is yeah it's it's difficult to articulate it because it's just uh so like when i'm driving a lot of times and it's not necessarily for photographs that will go in my portfolio but there will be times where i just see something and something in the back of my head just goes yes and if i decide to keep driving past it just in the back of my head it's constantly going and turn around turn around turn around you have the camera with you turn around and take the photograph because you're going to regret it and pretty much every time that i ignore that voice i do end up regretting it because a lot of these scenes that i'll 
see when I'm driving past are gone the next day or an hour later or whatever. Yeah, as the conditions are changing or, yeah. Yeah, there's so much that alters. So it's kind of just like that, that gut feeling almost, just something in the back of my head that's just like more in tune with the world than what I am cognitively. And it's just like, yeah, you need to stop and do something about this. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of what my experience is. And the best way that I can describe it is that I don't typically see the whole scene that I want to photograph right away. I, I don't I don't notice that, but what I notice is some sort of small detail. Uh, it could be uh, the way that the light is hitting something. It could be the texture or something, maybe a specific subject. But there's usually something small that attracts my eye and attracts my attention to a scene. And then the best way I can describe it is that at that point in time, everything else around me just kind of goes quiet and I only really notice that one particular thing. And then I have to explore it, kind of walk around it and, and, and I think start engaging my senses, but it's usually something very small. Um, there was, there's a scene I photographed in Zion back in 2017. It's one of my favorite photos from there. And it's in this, on this grassy slope, there's some, uh, a few boulders, uh, some maple trees, and there's this rock that caught my eye and some of the textures on it. And I started looking at that and trying to see if I can find maybe a composition for it walking around. But then when I stood back a little further, I realized that that rock in that scene was just one element of a greater scene um, that I ended up actually photographing with a really wide angle lens, which is not a common thing for me to do. So for me, it's the small, some sort of small detail that attracts my attention. And then when I focus my attention, then I start noticing the greater scene, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you, when you notice one of those small details in a greater scene, do you happen to, I know you said like you walk around the composition a little bit, but yeah. Do you tend to fall back on what initially the viewpoint that initially caught your eye or do you compose it differently? I think I oftentimes do. And, and, and perhaps it has something to do with just from that particular angle, all the elements align pretty nicely. And, and perhaps it's a matter of fine tuning things a little bit, but it's as though you're almost like looking through like this, like really narrow range scope and you find something that's pretty good. Then you start expanding that. And, um, there are some times when I find, uh, maybe there's a, uh, you know, completely better angle to photograph the subject. Um, uh, thinking of a, a tree, this juniper tree I photographed on my spring backpacking trip, um, I first saw it from one particular angle, and there was a, this really distracting branch coming from one side of it. It was just breaking up the symmetry of that tree. And I tried to work with it, tried to see if I can find a way to photograph it, but ultimately there's no way of getting around the fact that that branch was a distraction. Um, but then I moved around to, I moved around about, probably about 45 degrees around and I found an angle where that branch was minimized. Um, but it's, it's also interesting because it's like a puzzle. You know, I'll see something. I'm like, I know there's a solution here. 
I just got to find that solution. <laughs> and so I think that has been my experience. And, and the reason I asked you about like, if there's a, a certain feeling that you get is I do get, it's almost like you get like a little, a caffeine rush, kind of like a, I don't know what chemical that is in the brain that's giving that same sort of feeling, but it's like, I, I know that there's something here and I know that I can find a composition for it. And then that's the moment when everything else tends to, uh, quiet down. And I just am only focusing on that one task at hand. So I, for me, there is a feeling that's associated with it as well. Um, and it's, and maybe it's a, a sense of instinct based on past experience as well. I always find it interesting because when I'm going around in the woods and I happen upon a composition, most of the time I photograph it almost exactly how I had seen it, which kind of goes completely against the like compositional rules, so mm -hmm. to speak, because I'm not abiding by much of anything at that point. I'm not going to be lining up the the main subject onto the lower right rule of thirds. Yeah. Making sure that I have leading lines and the diagonals are the right direction and all of that. That's all kind of like afterthoughts, if thought at all. I wonder if my way of seeing was, my way of seeing now was helped by those basic ideas when I first started out. Because so? I remember when I first started out, I'd really abide by like the rule of thirds or making sure that I had leading lines and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I could see it having helped to train my eye to see compositions that are more pleasing. And now it just is kind of kind of like when you look on, on the ground glass, you're not necessarily seeing the image all inverted and flipped around. You're just kind of seeing it as you would on the film itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like when it comes to, you know, the, the basic rules of composition that you hear in 3000 different clickbait YouTube videos and such. Um, <laughs> like, I don't even think I like when I was first getting into photography, I don't even think any of that stuff was in the forefront of my mind. I think for me, it's always been a matter of just trying to find balance for the scene. And, and perhaps it's because I never really consumed that sort of content. Because when I was getting into it, you know, YouTube wasn't around. None of that stuff was around. Um, and yes, I mean, I was familiar with the rule of thirds and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for, for me, it's always a matter of, you know, here's an image in the viewfinder. Something about it feels unbalanced. What can I do to make it feel more balanced? And I think that has always been my approach when I see something. And, and sometimes there's something about a composition that bugs me. And I can't quite figure out what it is. Um, but then with a little bit of experimentation, I can, I can figure it out. And... I should also mention, and, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that I have talked about it in the past on here, but um, the artist view catcher, the little gray plastic frame, you can find them on Amazon, um, is a really good tool for troubleshooting a composition because uh, it just gives a rectangle that you can hold up and then look at the scene through that rectangle uh, and it can correspond to your aspect ratio. But I find that when you look through that, 
uh, it really allows me to figure out what it is about a composition that feels a little out of balance. Um, but yeah, like the whole thing, like, like, you know, find leading lines, find your rule of thirds, you know, never put your composition in the, or never put your subject in the middle of the frame. It's like, no, I don't, none of that stuff matters. I mean, I, I understand why that stuff is taught. Um, but I think it's probably a little, I, it's definitely overtaught. Um, when it comes to when when it comes to that sort of stuff yeah there's too much of a reliance on it that it just keeps getting pushed and pushed and especially like the golden ratio that's one that i never i always wanted to try and understand it but i never managed to and i still think that most people don't yeah I, i've heard that one a lot of times i honestly couldn't tell you really what it is is that is is it like an aspect ratio thing? I'm like, I honestly don't really even know what that is. It's hard to explain when you don't understand the reasoning <laughs> behind it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing that I know for sure about it is that it was made by a mathematician, I think back in like the 1800s or maybe before that. Mm -hmm. um, and when it started getting applied to art, he was kind of like, no. So yeah, it it's one of those that it's he had found it because he didn't truly make it. He more so found it mm -hmm. because it it appears everywhere in nature. This like just essentially it's a square bunch of squares. So you start off with a perfect square, and then you get you double that and put the little square inside of it and keep going till you get like a rectangle and then there's like a, a swirl oh thing yes. inside of it okay okay you're with me now yes, yeah i know exactly it, what you're if talking you go about. on a photoshop if you go on a photoshop and i think lightroom has it too they have like the little grid overlays yeah so you can technically put the grid overlay on there when you're cropping and to crop it so that it fits that a little bit better um I think Guy Tall did, and I'll put a link down below, he did two or three articles on composition, essentially just explaining why it's just, why it doesn't really matter, like the rules themselves don't mean anything, and that's yeah. where I got that that information from, the about the mathematician having found it. But Yeah, because yeah, I see photographers lay that spiral over their photos to explain compositions, but I'm like, you can lay that spiral over anything. Yes. And and like it doesn't necessarily like it just it's like a it's a just I don't know. It's just like a coincidence of things. You you can find meaning in anything, you know, by comparing two different things. Um so I've I've never understood that. Uh but and also like for example, when you will see a photographer explain a composition after the fact by kind of like drawing lines over the composition and here are the leading lines, here's this, here's this, here's this. I don't know that that's tremendously helpful for people that are learning because I don't think that's the, it's it's explaining something after the fact as opposed to showing what the thought process was in the field, um, which you can yeah. always rationalize something after the fact and it's pretty easy to do that. But to explain a thought process in the field is is a whole different thing. And I'm pretty sure people aren't busting out spirals to, you know, look at their compositions <laughs> ahead of time to like, oh, it doesn't quite go on the curve there. So that one's not going to work. 
So it's it it seems like an odd an odd thing that um that is done these days. So I I I don't understand it. Yeah, there's a book called um uh, I can't remember it now. That's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a book all about um it's all about art and visual literacy almost. Um and I'm slowly making my way through it because I'd like to do a series of articles specifically around like the way that we see truly mm-hmm. because there are certain things like diagonals, especially in a yeah. photograph can have a major impact on the meaning that you, that is portrayed. Yeah. So for sure when it comes to like leading lines and diagonals, even like triangles and certain uh, patterns that'll come up can be really impactful mm-hmm. in a way that applying golden ratio to your composition or rule of thirds, that's not going to mean anything. Yeah. So composition has its place, but when you go online and you see 10 ways to make your photographs better and the first way is to use rule of thirds. Yeah, just... You can just just just, just click out of just it. Just destroy your computer. At Do that something point in time. better with your yeah. life. Yeah, just throw away your computer. Throw away your exactly. Camera. Yeah. Um. So, what are some of the things when you're in the field, as you're composing a scene? Like, what are some of the things that you do pay attention to? Because I, I have some things that I definitely pay attention to in the field, but I'm curious if there's any particular things that go through your mind with regard to kind of like your own compositional guidelines the biggest thing for me because of photographing in black and white is tonality that'll always be like the first thing that i really try and pay pretty close attention to Mm -hmm. just because it makes such a big difference in the end result because if you end up with a composition where you don't have the tonal separation between like trees in the forest it can look really just two-dimensional it yeah. can look too flat um obviously like fog will help with that if you don't have necessarily the tonal separations but uh the typical ideas of what someone shooting in black and white will look for so tonality texture um those are really the two big things yeah um contrast contrast is always big like if you see a um a white flower or even because that's a fun thing when you get into black and white and you get into using filters so you can find a a red flower or a pink flower like the my photograph the lady's slippers was a pink lady slipper mm-hmm. but in the photograph it shows up almost like a pure white because of I used a uh, a deep red filter, which really brightened up the reds in the photograph and darkens the greens and everything behind it mm-hmm. to really give that kind of separation. So that's kind of along the lines of what I'm what I'm looking for. And then again, that's all led by my my you know, my intuition, my feeling towards towards the pieces. Yeah, I um. I remember when I was uh, earlier this year when I was in Death Valley, 
there was this one canyon I was going to check out. I hadn't been there before. And I was remembering one thing in particular that I was actively searching for. And I, I think I'd mentioned this um, in the video when I was heading out of the canyon. But when you had mentioned contrast, I, that's something that I wrote down here as well. Um, so I wrote down contrast of color, which is going to apply a little bit for what you do in terms of, like you said, using the red filter to kind of help build that separation of tones. Um, but also contrast of texture and contrast of subject. So I, I'm, you know, I'm looking for that degree of contrast so that one subject will stand out from another subject, uh, whether it's, you know, a, a tree against stone or, you know, something like that, where you have this visual contrast. But if there's also some color contrast between those, um, that's also something I look for. And then also contrasting textures, whether it's, you know, uh, grass compared to stone or things along those lines. So those are things that I actively very much look for. And I think that's also what I uh, pick up on uh, when it comes to noticing some small detail before that larger scene is revealed as I spend some time with it. Um, some of the other things I actually, I, well, that I actively pay very close attention to the field is odd numbers. Um, there was a, a photo I took, and it was back in 2016, of these. Um, it was oak trunks, but there were some maples kind of among them. And I remember looking at it, and there were six trunks there. I'm like, this is bugging me that there's six trunks here. I need it to be five trunks. <laughs> so rather than bringing my chainsaw with me, which I didn't happen to have with me that day, obviously that's, that's a oh, joke. Come I would on. never You're slacking. cut down a tree. Um, but I, I positioned the camera so that one of those trunks was hidden behind another trunk. Um, so that when you look at it, you see five trunks there instead of six. Um, but those are the things that I very much pay attention to because something about having an even number of subjects, it, it can work, but something about it sometimes just feels a bit off. Um, but then the other thing I pay attention to is, is the edges the edges of a subject yeah with with the uh odd numbers the your eye doesn't have anything to settle on so you're kind of like it creates that the unwanted tension yeah. in the frame of like your eyes constantly looking around and it can't you can't relax when you look at it yeah and so you just kind of move on but looking around the the edges of the frame that's something that i really picked up from your videos and from talking to you was it's something that I try and pass on on NPN all the time. I'm sure you get notified every time that I say it because of tagging you in it. I did see one of those, yeah. Um, anytime that like there's something that's just a little bit more space on like the bottom or one of the sides of the frame that could just relieve that, that tension that's added when something's just a little bit too close. Yeah. And it's it's really easy on like 4x5 or large format because if you have that that gridding so you can just leave an extra the one of the squares extra for space that's always something that i think about a lot yeah yeah that's um usually the amount of space around a subject um trying to keep it fairly similar um if it's a subject that's kind of a getting closer to a corner um but yeah, that's a big one. Also making sure that I have perhaps a little more foreground than I think I need. Um, and I'm thinking that that might be a result 
of viewing the image upside down on the ground glass because the foreground's up high. And so, especially on the eight by 10 where you can't really see the entire subject at once, um, I find that uh, oftentimes whatever my instinct is when looking on the ground glass or foreground is like, nope, I need a little more than that in order to be happy with it. And so it's got to have something to do with the viewing process, but uh, having a little extra foreground, that's another thing going through my mind. Um, so, I, I mean, but these things don't really make as good of a, you know, a top five tips and tricks kind of video because it's not quite as, uh, as cohesive as some of that stuff. But, but I, I think it's, it is very interesting to understand what is going through a photographer's mind when they set up a composition. Um, and I, I guess another thing along these lines is like, if I had to take portraits of someone you had, you had mentioned in one of the previous episodes about, um, you know, taking some of the, the portraits of families and stuff with your, your medium format camera. But like, if I were to set up a portrait photo of someone, like I would have no clue what to look for in terms of like what small little things can have a pretty big impact on that photo not looking quite right. Um, but I do have a pretty good feeling yeah. with that for like landscape shooting. Yeah, it's been a long while since I've done any kind of portrait or family sessions or anything. It's been about five years now because I kind of just put it all behind me the second that I start getting a landscape and really just doubled down into that. Yeah. So one bi one big thing that I always had difficulty with was like posing oh, people yeah. and telling them how to like how to pose. My girlfriend's always been good with it because she just became very comfortable and like natural uh, after you get into the rhythm of it. Yeah. But that was also years ago. So throwing a camera in front of her and being like, okay, pose is going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah. I would struggle with I that think for that sure. The nice thing with the nice thing with like family sessions, and that kind of thing is it's more, you can almost take like a more documentation approach to it yeah rather than having something so formal and okay sit here back straight just i'll tell you when to smile kind of deal um, one thing i did find that i'd love to do at some point um, is wet plate collodion and do set up like um, set up a tent at like an art fair or something and just do portraits of people That'd just for cool. a little bit above cost just so it covers the cost of the the equipment and all of that. Because I always find, find those to be quite fascinating. And it's something that you don't really see a lot of. But doing wet plate for landscape work, like you, what you and I do, I could imagine that would be very, very difficult. Yeah, because don't you have to, to process it like right away? Like I, I, I know very little about that process. Yeah, so wet plate, there's wet plate and then there's also dry plate in terms of when you're using um, glass plates instead of uh, plastic film negatives. So with wet plate, as the name suggests, it has to stay wet. So you have to um, prepare the glass plate with collodion, which is light sensitive, and then throw it in a film holder all in the dark. Then you go just use it as film, but then you have to process it right away. You have to sew... A lot of the times people will have um, these decent sized, almost like teepee kind of tents that they'll set up or um, 
more so they'll have um, like little trailers or I know someone, I forget what his name is. I mentioned him in a past episode. I'll link him below. He's doing one on um, a whole series of wet plates on lighthouse workers. Um, and he actually took a an ambulance and retrofitted it to be his little drive around dark room. That's cool. So that's really what makes it so difficult. Like it's a great process, but yeah, the the amount of equipment and how quick you have to be with it is difficult for like when you're truly backpacking. Oh yeah. I mean there are people out there <laughs> there's there's one person that I know that they do these huge like 20 by 24 inch um, glass plates and they have ones of like mountains and that kind of thing but you're talking like you're right off off the side of the road because you have to be yeah still gorgeous photographs doesn't take anything away from them but it's not the you're not as immersed in nature as what you may like to be yeah and the photos I've seen as a result from that um, and the ones I've seen have been mostly like the portraits um, it's, they're so fascinating just because it has a different response than, um, than one would think in terms of like people's eyes look so like, like light colored and, uh, there's like this vividness to it cause it doesn't respond to color the same way that a, um, like the current black and white films do. Uh, I don't know what the word is. I don't yeah, know if it's, it's orthochromatic or I don't remember what the word was, Yeah, but yeah, it responds like an orthochromatic film. Yeah. So most black and white films now are panchromatic, but back in the early days of black and white films, and then before that when wet plate was pretty much the only way that you could make photographs, it was orthochromatic, which just means that the uh, the reds in a photograph will go black. The, there's no um, red sensitivity, so it's not necessarily the best for portraiture yeah because it really shows your your blemishes and yeah. all of that a lot more so it's not like the most pleasing in the world oh but... sure it's fascinating though like like it looks oh, like everyone yeah, has like absolutely. freckles as a result it's it is pretty yeah. interesting have you ever worked with the um the uh, ortho film at all i haven't i've wanted to because ilford has uh their they resurrected their ortho line uh, I think a couple of years ago, four years ago now, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and Natalie Oberg, who is a fantastic photographer based, I think, out of Scotland. She works a lot with Ilford. Yeah, her work's fantastic. She's done some work with orthofilm and gotten some pretty nice results. I think my biggest thing was just the fear of, like, I don't know how this film is going to react to scenes. Yeah. So it's it's one of those where you just kind of have to... I would I would want to get a box and then have say two film holders with ortho two with my regular film and then compare the shots just to kind of get an understanding of how the scenes differ. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. It really would be. There was a a scene on my spring backpacking trip and I'd mentioned in a past episode how there was a photo I shot, I liked the composition, the light wasn't quite right i had uh photographed it on provia but i figured you know next time i'm in that canyon uh this coming spring i'll be back there hopefully i'll have better conditions to photograph it 
but I took that photo that had rather poor light on it. I scanned it and I was playing with the color filters for a black and white conversion in Photoshop. And I can't remember what the exact settings were I used, but there was one where the, I think I was, uh, I put it in the, the sort of the pseudo infrared mode where the, um, the, the green leaves went really, really light colored, but then this tree was up against um, some reddish orange kind of sandstone. And then that went dark and it was really beautiful. And I was looking at that, I'm like, I wonder how that scene would look on ortho film because since I know that the reds aren't very sensitive at all, so I'm wondering if that sandstone is red enough for it to darken down um, and if those leaves are gonna be, if it's gonna bring out some contrast between them, but it may not be red enough. And so I'm not quite sure how that would work, but it was, it was really interesting to see uh, how that tree was separated from the background. Yeah, you could kind of emulate it a bit in Photoshop with a color piece just by um, darkening down the reds, raising up like the blues and the cyans. Yeah. And then turning it into a black and white. But still, it's not going to be exact yeah. to what a film, would, film, true film stock would, would show. But yeah. Yeah, there's a lot with that kind of stuff. Like infrared, I've wanted to do and try out, and I've had it in my cart in B&H for like the saved for later kind of thing for like two years now. I'm just, like you said, it's just one of those things of like one of these days I just have to just spend the money on it and be like, all right, let's experiment some and see what happens. Yeah. But So I was, I was thinking about something else, um, sort of speaking of the backpacking trip something else came to mind um so i've i've had this this thing that has happened when i've gone on my backpacking trips with regard to um my hiking but my hiking boots <laughs> my my hiking boots <laughs> and my uh and uh my uh my toes in general um what i i be i know that a lot of photographers a lot of people that are hiking they have their preference in in boots and in footwear and i think this might be a topic that could be of interest to those that are listening um, what sort of hiking boots or footwear do you usually use when you're out on the trail so i have a pair of like everyday um i think they're what is it tim's i think i have a pair of those that i wear on like the daily that are just like ankle boots Mm-hmm. Um, but for my hiking, I'm primarily using like hunting boots from like Cabela's. Um, so they're just mid calf almost in terms of height. I mm-hmm. like something that because of having photographed waterfalls for so long, um, whenever I would, I'd like to get into the river a little bit and I actually have a story on that that I can tell them in a minute. Yeah. But, uh, so I like to have boots that are tall enough where if I want to go into the river or if I need to cross a river on a trail or something, I'm not going to get my feet soaked and or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really brand loyal to anything. I mean, there, there are days where I wish I had worn my Tims instead because they're just above the ankle. 
but I always make sure that I have some kind of ankle support. But still, there are days when having such long or tall boots is not the best thing or isn't as beneficial because of, like, the heat, especially. Yeah. Um, but there's one time, back in 2018, I went up to a waterfall called um, Cater's Kill Falls in New York. Mm-hmm. And beautiful waterfall and i had gotten a um a panoramic scene of it with dark thunderclouds in the background and all that and it's really nice and then we did the little hike down to the base of it and walked behind it got completely soaked and then i wanted to get a photograph of the waterfall just from like the base with a river leading up to it mm-hmm. And so I went and I found a nice little spot in the river that I could still, I had my footing and everything. Well, then all of a sudden it starts downpouring. Oh. <laughs> and the river very quickly started to rise. Oh, wow. At that point, it, it got to the point where my tripod was almost completely underwater. Like it was maybe my ball head was, was still above water. Oh, wow. And at that point I was like, Okay, I have the photograph. It's, I have no idea if it's sharp because of all the, the water that's just hitting the tripod. Yeah. And, like the small movements and that. Luckily, it was digital, so it was still high enough shutter speeds that it could capture at sharp enough. Um, but yeah, needless to say, my high hiking boots did not uh, did not really help me there. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Jeez, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I can only imagine because I mean, there's been times when I've been in the Narrows in Zion, and you know the the water not even being up that high, but once it starts moving, it starts like shaking those tripod legs. Um, so there, there's oh, some, yeah, yeah wow. Um, and then there's there's a time that I ended up going swimming one time in a river, and that that wasn't that wasn't much fun. Uh, but one of the things that, that I've noticed, so the boots I wear, I've, I've had several pairs of them now. I've been very happy with them overall. They're the, um, from Solomon. They're the Quest 4 Gore-Tex boots. Um, they give really good uh, high ankle support. So if I'm on, let's say, a little bit of a slippery rock and my foot slides and like smashes into another rock, it's not going to just like crush my ankle. Um, so I, I've been very, very happy with them. But there's been uh, two times now. So in, in first time was in 2017. The second time was this year where on my backpacking trips, there's a lot of river crossings. And by the time I get to my campsite, I have to cross the river like right before I get to my campsite. And when I first started going to these areas, I would at the river crossing, I'd take my boots off where maybe wear some neoprene socks cross, put the boots back on. And it's just, it's too time consuming. Um, and also there's all kinds of little sharp rocks on the, uh, on the riverbed that even with neoprene socks, it's, it's quite painful. So eventually I'm just like, I'm just going to just clump into this water and just, you know, and just be done with it. But in 2017, and then this year, um, you know, my, the, the following morning when I wake up in my, in my tent there, my boots are still going to be wet from the day before. Uh, there's, there's no real getting around that. Um, 
but also in 2017 and then also on this year's trip, that first morning was a pretty cold one, um, enough that there was a little bit of frost. So I was waking up to cold, wet boots, which Ooh, that's fun. Is, is never really ideal. And the thing that happened is, you know, I, I put the boots on, tied them up, and then went out, went about the day to set out in the canyon and, and go do some photography. And on both of those times, I ended up basically like bruising my, my toenails, like, <laughs> which is a lovely thing. Um, and so, and you, you could just feel like, oh, something bad is happening here. And so I think I finally figure out what was going on. I think it's just because since the boots were cold, since the boots were wet, I was not able to, even though I, I tied them down as tight as I could, I think I could just never tie them tight enough to hold my foot back in the back of the boot. And so the first time I go down like some sort of downhill, you know, it just like crunches my toes. Um, so it's, it's not a, um, it's not a pleasant situation, especially since uh, footwear is quite important, but I've been trying to find some way around this, whether it's like finding some fancy plastic <laughs> bags to put over my boots when I'm going through the water. Uh, I don't want to take another spare pair of shoes just because it's added weight, but I know that's not, that perhaps that's what people do. Um, but the, one of the reasons I, I, met, I wanted to bring this up is that, you know, for those of you that are listening, if you guys have some good suggestions on how to go about doing this, I've even thought about maybe taking my cold, wet boots, uh, put them in a plastic bag and put them in my sleeping bag with me for the night, um, just so that they're warm in the morning. Um, but there's gotta be some sort of creative solutions. Um, but it doesn't sound like you've, you've had this, this sort of issue, Cody. No, not, not really. Like I said, the, the rivers that I wade through, typically my boots are high enough to, to avoid getting completely soaked. And most of the time when I'm out camping, I'm not, at least not recently, I haven't really been wading through much water at all. So I could easily go with uh, yeah. like ankle high or a little bit higher boots without having any kind of difficulty. Um, you know, of course, my father decides to mow the lawn now, so I'm sure that's humming in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually. Uh, l- let me uh, let me shut off a fan in the background real quick. Hold on, just a second. I have a whole house fan that uh, kicked on, which it may not pick up, but I've seen it a little bit on the audio levels, so it might be there. So, good good excuse to shut that <laughs> off while we're at it. All right. Oh yeah, back to the boots. Um, yeah, haven't really had that much of an issue with it. My only thought would, regarding your problem, would just be to carry something like mm-hmm. Crocs because they're lightweight enough, and just to switch into beforehand. But then you get into that yeah similar issue as with your socks, and then you have to take the time to switch into them, and it's a little bit out of weight. Yeah, I'd I'd be curious to see yeah. what people say and what suggestions yeah. they have probably just the biggest one is just yeah, build a bridge and walk over it <laughs> avoid water completely <laughs> yes just carry enough lumber uh just get some uh some donkeys to to yeah. carry the everyone lumber needs a photography mule and uh nice 
Yeah, nice a nice suspension bridge enough to, you know, have the donkeys cross it for the next one. I got to build a, a little bit further downstream, but uh, yeah, I could see you doing it. I think that would work. Any other uh, topics you have in mind? Not for this one, I don't think. I think we'll save the the other two, the unlocking the commons and ebook for next time. Keep this one a little bit shorter. I hope you enjoyed our creative banter. You can learn more about Cody's work by visiting his website, CodySchultz.com. And you can find my work at BenHorn.com. For further discussion, join us at Patreon.com slash Creative Banter. It's a place where we can interact with you, the listener. And although we greatly appreciate those who contribute by joining a tier, discussions are open to everyone whether you're a pain member or not. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you around next time.